time to go home now. And there's always uh, the consideration now of what is called how to integrate what we learn here, uh, how to integrate that with our life as we find it when we go home. Uh, I've never been too happy with that term integration because uh, if you're really practicing fully here, it's not different. I mean, what is there to integrate to? Uh, it's the same practice. It's just the stage set is different. It's no longer IMS as a backdrop. And the conditions change dramatically. But the principles are identical. Um, on the level of breathing, when the breath really becomes the breath, and that happens just through this conscious breathing practice that we have, you're able to fully receive an in-breath. Fully receive it just as it is. And the reason you can fully receive the in-breath just as it is is because you've also learned how to fully allow the out-breath to leave totally. When the out-breath leaves totally, the in-breath fills up totally. Typically what we have are kind of compromises on both ends. Uh, with emotional, either symbolic or literally. You know, the breath is a very, very sensitive indicator of everything. Sometimes called a yogic thermometer. So applied here, uh, I think most or all of us will be leaving soon. Um, Can you fully breathe out IMS when you leave here? If you can do that, then you can fully breathe in Detroit, Boston, New York City. (laughs) Excuse me, sorry. Even New York City. Well, I'm sorry. I'll watch it. Um, Now, maybe the the tendency is not so great on a shorter retreat, but uh, in retreat circles, I think probably all of us, if you've done a fair number of these, there tends to be a, a way in which the mind structures life so that the real practice goes on on a retreat and then we go back to our daily life, small d, meditation practice, capital M, capital P. Uh, and we have a, a split between uh, the peace, the quiet, vegetables, everything that's here. <laughs> and then when we go home to whatever it is, machine gun fire, you know, uh, we have this split. And so then the mind dwells on the idyllic conditions of retreat life and longs to come back and spends a lot of time lamenting how we, you can't come back as often as we can. We don't have enough money or my job or my family or I'm in the middle of a course. And, and the mind is looking forward to coming back for the next retreat. You circle one on the brochure and... Some of us get odd jobs to save the money to go back. In the meantime, life is passing us by. Uh, and we create this schizophrenic existence. This is for people who get very committed to these things. If you're not that committed to it, then you're inoculated. You're safe. It's okay. You don't have to worry. Uh, so we create a split. You're not hospitalized for it. But nonetheless, you have these two worlds. And then, of course, you have to learn how to integrate. <clears throat> because you've created two worlds in the first place, and then you have to learn how to go from one into the other. But if you, when you're here, if you're, the instructions are to, 
to fully be here, to fully, when you come here, to fully breathe out Boston and fully breathe in IMS. That means everything, to practice 100%, to pour your whole being into the sitting, into the walking, into the eating, into the dressing, etc. Now, of course, we forget, we slip off the track many, many times, but just the attempt to stay on the track, that's what the practice is here. And when we leave, then it's time to breathe out IMS, totally, breathe it out, and to breathe in where we're next, to do that wholeheartedly. It doesn't mean uh, that you can't tell your spouse or partner or friend how the retreat was. It's not like, no, they said that you have to breathe it out totally. <laughs> can never talk about what we did at IMS. That's a closed chapter. Just what's for dinner. Uh, it's more become sensitive as how you use your experience at IMS, the retreat, and see if you're using it in such a way as to compromise your present life where you are, which would be where you get to in Detroit or wherever that is, Amherst or Maine or New Hampshire. Uh, so it's this, the correct use of the past. There's no problem. Memories are fine. Uh, if this was a valuable retreat, we hope it was, and you want to share that with someone, there's nothing wrong with that. It's only when the mind makes it into something and then it's at the expense of the real life that you happen to be living in, the moment and the place that you find yourself in. So that's an attitude. It's a big one. Because if you have the attitude of living wholeheartedly, then wherever you are, perfect time and place to practice. For example, as you leave here, perhaps you've developed some samadhi, some calm and a certain fulfillment and joy. And you get in your car and you start driving down the road. And as the mileage starts ticking up, you know, off and it gets, you get closer and closer to Boston, your hard-earned samadhi starts falling away. And by the time you get to Arlington, it's gone. Okay. Okay. So then you can either curse this place and us and say, it's just a temporary fix. It's, I'm never going back there again. Nothing lasts. And uh, they were right. Everything is impermanent and we're not going back there again. <laughs> or you can take the meditative perspective. These are just these conditions. Are, IMS conditions are, this is an intentional environment based on thousands of years of experience. You know, we've kind of taken what we've learned in Asia and brought it back here and made modifications because it's a different culture. And so everything is set up to protect us, to help us get calm, concentrate, and so forth. As you leave here, the conditions are different. Those conditions are set up to destroy your samadhi, etc. Okay. But the practice is being with the way it is. And so you can say, oh, look at that. My samadhi is totally disintegrating. And just being with that feeling of being confused or uh, being annoyed or disappointed. I worked so hard. I thought this would last longer than this. Uh, and just feeling that resentment. That's good, solid practice. It's not holding on to the concentrated state, treasuring it, embossing it, uh, dipping it in bronze, putting it on your piano mantle or making a a little card out of it, you know, and then putting it in your wallet. Uh, it's seeing this is the way it is. The way it is is when conditions change, then uh, this concentration that we got, that's not absolute truth. That's a condition itself. And as we learn that, then that's a step in the direction of wisdom. So that we learn to be with the way it is. That will continue to be a guideline. 
that doesn't go out of style because we leave IMS. It will always be helpful. And conscious breathing can be one way. It's not the only way, but it is a way, a way that's been used for a long time to help you maintain that uh, direct contact with the present moment so that you can fully receive the present moment as it is. And then when it's over, and I mean here not just the breath, but the situation, that you can fully allow it to breathe itself out. And so that metaphor, in a sense, is our whole life as we move from one person, one situation to the next, to do each thing fully and completely, and when it's over, to let it go and move on and do what... Because we've let it go, we can do the next thing fully and thoroughly, and so forth. So we've we've learned that. Uh, some of you may have found, well, I don't really want to use the breath so much. It is, if you're drawn to anapanasati, full awareness of breathing, then try to keep it alive throughout the day, wherever you go back to, because the more you use it, the stronger it gets. The more vivid it becomes, the more natural it becomes for you to keep the breath in mind, to turn to it. And then you have an invaluable ally as you attempt to live in your life as it is. If you're not drawn to this, uh, to the breath as a total practice, uh, this is just a, you know, a sampler in a way for some of you. That's all right. There are many other methods. Finally, the main thing is mindfulness. If the breath is helping you to be more mindful, great. Keep using it. If it's getting in the way or it's not for you, then drop it. But you can't drop mindfulness, at least if you're going to do this practice. That's the, what is the term? Bottom line. It's used for everything now. Even here, we can use it. Uh, because if you're not awake, then any talk of spiritual life or uh, dharma or any of that is just fanciful. It's just, an, it's just a, fan, a fantasy. So mindfulness is always going to be vital for us. Awareness, sensitivity, the willingness to learn. And I would suggest that in going home, I'm not going to go, you've all done retreats before. Uh, the principles of shamatha vipassana are not just in the uh, sitting posture. It's a way of life. It's a way of life where you are always finding ways to calm and concentrate the mind and then to use that state of mind to see more deeply into where you are. So the samadhi can be developed. It's, it's not only developed on the cushion. It can be developed washing the dishes, vacuuming, doing uh, the lawn, whatever when you're at one with a situation, when you're totally there, undivided, you're not separated, then you're contributing to that quality of mind. That's samadhi in action. And then wisdom is also... uh, Wisdom is wisdom in action now. You can learn a lot as you sit still and watch your mind go through things. You can feel suffering come up and see why you're suffering, that you've grasped after a certain mental state or wanting the breath to be as calm as it was in the previous sitting. And then you see it isn't, and you suffer. And you see through that, and that's a moment of wisdom and letting go. And then you feel fine. You learn something. But that model uh, continues to be relevant. It's not just on the cushion. So, for example, by the way, I'm going to assume that you all have heard enough about you should have a a daily practice or a formal sitting, right? Is there anyone who's never heard that? Okay, so I'll spare us that litany. But it's, it's, it's not that I don't take it seriously, because I do. So establish a daily practice, of course, meaning the formal sitting. You can, some walking as well. But what I'm talking about is 
simply the rest of the day, which is merely 99% of our life. So if you have a nice formal practice and get very concentrated and very serene and insightful, and then you, but then you have to spend 99% of your time out, off the cushion. And if you don't know how to do that, if, if it's hard for you to live those other 99%, what do you think the practice will amount to finally? Not much, in my experience. So I would say, going back to whatever your situation is, no doubt it's challenging because it's human. There are going to be people in it, right? They don't always behave the way you want them to. They don't always say what you want to hear. In fact, you can predict it. It's guaranteed. Right? And then you have all kinds of other considerations of food and weather and uh, unexpected illness. and It's endless. Life is uncertain. It keeps being uncertain. Okay. So what I would say is that in going back, part of this attitude of fully breathing out IMS so that you can fully breathe in Amherst, I don't know, wherever you, you're going back to, um, amounts to something like this. Um, it's an attitude towards meeting life fully. It's not viewing meditation as an escape, really, at all. Uh, to come away from your life for a period of time on a retreat like this, I don't see that as an escape, personally. Uh, because even sometimes, as you know, retreat is the wrong word. It should be attack. <laughs> because what you're facing here can be much more harsh and demanding than on Times Square. I mean, sometimes the hardest things are inside us. But at any rate, we're here and we go back. Um, Facing life is simply, we have a life. Whatever that is, you may say, I don't have a life. You know, isn't there a new phrase now? I want to, I, I want to get a life. What is the phrase? You know, like, get a life. Or, yeah. Okay. Okay, but you, everyone has a life. There's only daily life. I haven't found anything else, except maybe in your fantasy life. There's daily life. Day in and day out. Night in and night out. For as long as we're alive, we're going to have daily life. Okay, and either we meet it or we miss it. Okay. It seems to me that uh, one way of looking at the practice, is it's, uh, which is wisdom, all wisdom teachings have to do with the art of living. It's the art of living happily. Uh, a good starting point is to understand that we're not living happily. Nothing personal. But there's a fair chance that at least little pockets that are not working so well, or am I being too disrespectful? So that the practice becomes learning how to live. And the teacher is certainly not Michael or Larry or anyone else. The teacher is life itself. But now the question is, are there any students? The curriculum is flourishing. It's all over the place. But is anyone out there willing to learn? Because life keeps teaching us. Life as it expresses itself through other people, through changes in climate, through changes in the body, political, politi- you, you tell me. And we always react to every change, to everything that's happening. We're alive, we're sensitive, and we have this tendency to respond. And the question is, do we respond with attention and wisdom or just mechanically? And are we propelled into action by unexamined forces in the mind that commit us to actions that don't work? Stuff comes out of our mouth that makes people unhappy, and then we wonder, 
what are we doing? Why did I say that? We, we do things that uh, after the smoke clears, we, we don't follow. Why did I do that? So the practice becomes using mindfulness and discernment. That means uh, the willingness to learn from what you attend to. That is, granted, we all have heard mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Of course, keep that alive as much as you can throughout the day in every situation. And if the breath helps you do that, by all means, uh, combine conscious breathing with as many activities as you can. But then, whenever you enter into any situation, whether there's a person there or not, typically we have a reaction. Something happens and we respond to it in some way. If we're willing to pay attention, then we begin to learn. We begin to see uh, life itself teaches us. I, I don't, to me, it's not a cliche at all. Uh, life in the form of the postman or the postwoman. Life in the form of a rainstorm when we were planning a picnic. Uh, life in the form of a child being uh, irritable when you wanted it to be uh, quiet. So that things are always happening and we react to them. And if we pay attention, we begin to learn about how we actually live. And it's by this kind of honest, direct perception of how we actually live, underscore actually, italics, capital letters, neon, how do we actually live? Not how do we think we live or images that we've come to believe about how we live, cliches or words that characterize to ourselves and to others how we live. But from moment to moment, if you pay attention, you will see how you actually live. Take it out of the realm of all these glosses or idealizations. How do I actually live right here and right now? And it's out of that attitude, if you begin to do that, it's a wonderful adventure. It's constant learning going on. And for me, that's, I would say, perhaps the main driving force of my practice is uh, I enjoy learning. Only here, what you're studying is the book you're reading. You're reading yourself. You're reading this, the inner book. I'm not saying don't read. You can read you know, paper books, too, and computer books and everything they're coming out with. But if you don't read your own book, then uh, it isn't this practice. This practice is self-knowledge, self-understanding. So take relationship. Whether you have one or you don't have one, everyone has relationship. Because we're constantly in the presence of people. And something happens. Uh, and one very useful way to look at it is to see relationship as a mirror. That is, even if the other person never heard of Vipassana and could care less and is not committed to self-knowledge, but they happen to be in your presence and as a result you have a reaction, they've just enabled you, they've been a mirror, they help you to see. Uh, maybe they don't treat you the right way and so you get uh, really uh, embittered or irritated or angry. But that means you're still the kind of person who can get angry. Now, the person who's there has, in that sense, given you an opportunity to learn about yourself. You have a choice. You could spend the energy blaming them, uh, blaming the world, correcting things outwardly, and sometimes we have to do that as well. It's not to not do that. But at least some of the time, understand that you have an opportunity to see and to understand. And that's wisdom in action. When we're, the, the mindfulness is keeping up with our life as we live it out.
and the breath can help us do that. Um, let me suggest a few ways of using conscious breathing. Uh, I think many of you are familiar with this, but just in case some of you are not, uh, and to avoid certain confusion that comes up with how to use the breath once you leave the safety of this uh, place, this wonderful place. There are many situations throughout the day which are in some way similar to IMS in that uh, not much is being asked of us. There's really not much being asked of you here except to be with yourself. So let's say you're waiting for an elevator and maybe it's a minute and a half. During that minute and a half, if you're Uh, if you keep the breath in mind and you experience the breathing, you may find that there's a little bit of calmness that comes from it, a little bit of refreshment. And you're just a little bit better able to move into the next situation when you get off the elevator and go in for an interview or meet a friend or go into the cafeteria or whatever is next. Uh, We buy things. And while the clerk is uh, taking care of the paperwork, Maybe there's 30 seconds or 45 seconds where we can... The breath is always there. That's the beauty of it. It's always there. You can't say you're too busy to do this practice. It just uh, it doesn't, makes no sense. Are you too busy to breathe? So the breath is always there. And the question is, more and more, the practice is learning to remember that we have this breath here. And as you turn to it, and in situations like this, or let's say you're in a car and there's a red light, and let's say it's a two-minute wait or a minute and a half wait until the light changes, you can either have that be the old way it was, which is training and impatience and cursing or whatever it is, because, and just you can't wait for the light to change and then you bolt out or you race to kind of beat a red light so that you can get to where you don't want to go to anyway based on what people say. And then when they get there, they can't wait to get out of there to somewhere else that they don't want to go to. I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be uh, everything. But where we are, bumper sticker mentality. Okay. What if when the, the red light turns up and you're in the car and you come to a halt, uh, you redefine it totally so that it becomes like this bell, like the bell that we're using here, all throughout the retreat. It's a call for you to come back to yourself. And so you're sitting and you breathe for a minute and a half. The red light at a certain point will be, you'll get all teary-eyed. Oh, God, a red light, great. I can, I can practice for two, just like Barry. So, and I'm sure in your own situation, you'll find... Uh, I have in mind, throughout the day, there are just really quite a few of these, a minute here, three minutes there, four minutes there, waiting for a train, on the train, etc. On lines, uh, where it's possible to just very simply turn to the breath, where you're mainly with the breathing, because not much else is asked of you. However, then there are these other situations where things are being demanded of us. Uh, where we're talking to people or we're doing things physically. And there, the relationship to the breath is rather different. The conscious breathing can still help us, but there it's more uh, as an adjunct in the service of helping you do what the situation calls for better. 
So that, for example, if someone's talking to you and you're just following your breath and not listening to them, say, I learned this at IMS. <laughs> you say, yeah, right. You, you've been doing this in our whole relationship, only now you have, you're going to try and use the Buddha to get you out of it. <laughs> I want you to listen to me. Dear, honey, sweetie. So, in those situations, and in so many situations, there's an intelligence built into the situation, which tells us what's being asked of us. When it's time to drive, really drive, that, uh, hopefully. I mean, don't be so into your breath and so uh, full of shamatha and serenity that uh, you disregard what situation you're in, which is potentially a lethal one, fatal one. So there, most of your attention is on the driving. And there can still be some being in contact with the breathing as you drive. And it can help you stay concentrated, actually, once you learn how to do it. Because the conscious breathing minimizes unnecessary thinking when the mind gets caught up in all the blah, blah, blah. And so in that situation, you're fully driving. Perhaps the breath is helping you do that. Then when there's a red light, the priorities change where you can be with the breath much more fully until the light changes, then you go back to driving more fully. When you're with another person, you're really paying attention to them. And uh, we, have, we give a fair number of interviews in Cambridge and on retreats here. And I use the conscious breathing to help me listen carefully, especially if you're listening to a lot of people one after another. Uh, you want your mind to be clear so that you fully hear the person you're with and not the echo of the person who just walked out of the interview room. And the breath can help you with that. So for me, it's been very, very useful. Um, So you'll have to work that out in your life where the breath is kind of alongside of you, helping you to do what it is you're supposed to be doing, and other times where you can really be with the breathing. Um, Well, there's much more, of course, daily life, but I think I'm going to have to leave it uh, I'll leave you with one uh, idea which is a very powerful one and it's been tested for thousands of years. The precepts, which Michael referred to on the, when we began the retreat. Uh, the precepts can be a tremendous help in your daily life if you take them on. Um, so if you're ready for it, take the five precepts. Now, You might say, well, there are no teachers around to offer the five precepts. The traditional way is, let's say, a teacher offers it and there's a ceremony and you take it. But that might be helpful. People say, well, I took the precepts with Thich Nhat Hanh, as if somehow that's going to magically maintain your integrity. You know, maybe you did take the the precepts with Thich Nhat Hanh, but then uh, he's not there anymore. And now you still face the same situation of whether to lie or not, whether to steal or not, whether to misuse sexual energy, whether to cloud your mind, whether to to speak in such a way that's harmful, and so forth. To steal. So finally, no one can give you the precepts. So even if you live in in some remote part of this country where the teachers never go to, and you have to wait until some teacher gives you the five precepts, Finally, you always give the five precepts to yourself. If it's sincere, it's in here that you take the five precepts. A meditation hall can help with a Buddha and incense and chanting and 
you know, everything. I'm not saying that that can't be helpful, but that's not really it. And it, that isn't the strongest part of it at all. That's just packaging. Finally, it'll have to do with whether you see that taking these up as guidelines to live, to live can actually be helpful. Because the five precepts are not meant to be like commandments that come down from a higher place, which we have to do because God told us we should do it, or the rabbi or the priest or some Buddhist monk or some other teacher, or it says so in the book, or my parents told me I should do it. That isn't too reliable. Just take a look at the world. So it's more taking up the precepts and linking it very much with our practice, with mindfulness. Because uh, if, you, if you can see that the precepts are grounded in wisdom and compassion, then you're not doing it just out of obedience to an authority, even out of obedience to yourself as an authority. But you're not stealing or misusing sexual energy or lying because it makes no sense to do that. It doesn't work. Inevitably, it produces suffering. Inevitably, it destroys the quality of our life. So you don't do those things because they're stupid. They're unintelligent. It's been proven that they don't work. We've all, we're the living proof. Or just open up the newspapers or turn on your TV. The level of integrity is at an all-time low. I don't know if it's an all-time low. I haven't been around before, but it's pretty low. Now it's just documented and rubbed in, you know, it's in your face. And if you take that on, but always staying mindful, understanding that the precepts are guidelines to live, and of course we have the tendencies to violate them. Otherwise, why would we need precepts? We'd all just be little saints and just go spinning around doing our saintly thing. We're not. We are very inclined to lie, to steal, to misuse sexual energy, etc., etc., And so having these reminders as precepts and using awareness to notice our mind, to get to know the mind, to see tendencies, to uh, commit courses of action which will just bring grief upon ourselves and those in our life, we have an option. We can short-circuit it. Sometimes the breath can help even there. Sometimes you're about to say something that's not true or that's irresponsible or that's harsh. And you just have like, you can just hang on to one breath you won't say it. In other words, it's a kind of restraint. But if you don't make it, it just comes blurting right out. Sometimes it takes every effort, all the tremendous energy to just not say that kind of thing because you know it's going to hurt someone. And sometimes what you can do is just chew on the breathing a couple of breaths instead of saying it. And then you refrain from saying something that was not uh, beneficial for you or someone else. So I would strongly encourage you to bring that aspect of the practice. You know, our practice is really three uh, modes of practice, all of which are interrelated and reinforce each other. Sila, or uh, training in integrity or, or morality, virtue. In other words, how to live in a civilized way, in a compassionate way. Samadhi, which is the, what we've been doing a lot of, enabling the mind to become steady and concentrated. And then, of course, panya, wisdom, insightful living, living that, is, uh, try, that, is, that learns. We live and learn. And then we correct, from understanding, we correct actions that are, that are unskillful. 
and we nourish actions that are skillful. Okay, I hope that our little weekend together was of some value. And I wish you all the best wherever you're going to. So after you have your meal and get ready to go, breathe this place out and then fully breathe in wherever you're going to next. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.